Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please keep in mind that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice, but is purely for the purpose of education. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. Today, we're talking to Dr. Sander Vanderlinden, who's an expert on misinformation. Over the last few years, it's become increasingly apparent how the spread of incorrect information can be damaging on a societal level. Today, we'll talk a little bit about where misinformation comes from, what it is, and how you can stop it. So welcome, Dr. Vanderlinden. Pleasure to be on the show. So Dr. Vanderlinden is a professor of social psychology at the University of Cambridge and director of the Cambridge Social Decision-Making Lab. Prior to Cambridge, Dr. Vanderlinden was a postdoctoral research associate and lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Princeton University. Before that, he was a visiting research scholar at Yale University. He received his PhD from the London School of Economics and Political Science, and his research centers around the psychology of human judgment, communication, and decision-making. He's also interested in the psychology of fake news, media effects, and belief systems such as conspiracy theories, as well as the emergence of social norms and networks, attitudes and polarization, reasoning about evidence, and the public understanding of risk and uncertainty. So let's start with the basics. What is misinformation? How does misinformation differ from disinformation? Let's get some definitions. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of debate on these definitional sort of concepts, and I use a definition that I think is okay. I mean, it's pretty pretty decent as far as definitions go. So I just view misinformation as anything that's incorrect, and so it's the broadest sort of overarching concept. So it could be a simple error, whereas disinformation is misinformation coupled with some psychological intention to actually harm or deceive other people or to manipulate them. So disinfo is misinfo plus some intent to actually deceive people. And I think people use the term fake news for both misinformation and disinformation and sometimes also propaganda, which is, to me, actually disinformation plus a political agenda. So you're deceiving people in the service of a, of a political agenda. So I kind of distinguish between those three layers. It's not perfect. So for example, one of my favorite examples is actually a headline from otherwise a reputable outlet like the Chicago Tribune, who ran with the story that doctor died after receiving the COVID vaccine, which were two independent events, but it was framed as if there's some kind of connection there, which was unknown at the time. But is that disinformation? Is that misinformation? And so I think if it's an error, they weren't thinking about it, maybe it's misinformation. But was it an explicit clickbait attempt to do people into clicking on the story? Then maybe it's disinformation. But actually trying to discern intent can be quite difficult. But I think that just keeping that distinction in mind, I think, is potentially useful because I'm much more concerned about disinformation than I am about misinformation. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point too, where often, especially in looking at vaccines, I think a lot of people will draw an association with an event that has happened one time to one person and say, oh, I got my COVID vaccine and then I got sick after, so I must have gotten COVID. And I think there's a lot of danger in drawing those sorts of associations. And I think that that newspaper article really highlights that and kind of how common that is. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a big issue. And particularly, I think scientific 
misinformation or medical misinformation is particularly tricky, especially as our understanding of the science sort of evolves. Some things you can say are categorically true or untrue, regardless of what stage in the scientific process we're in. But other things that are kind of emerging can sometimes be a bit trickier. Does the virus originate from a lab? I think we'll touch on that a little bit later on. So how does the study of misinformation relate to behavioral science? I think you've already touched on this a little bit. Yeah, so I think to me, there's two sides to it. One is we can try to understand the psychology of it. So how does the brain process information more generally, but but misinformation in particular? Why do we make errors when it comes to judging the veracity of news media content? What's going on there in terms of the psychological mechanisms of what makes us think that something is true versus false. And that's a very interesting line of study. But then there's also the consequences of people, individuals, believing, endorsing, and sharing misinformation, both consequences to the individual as well as to society at large, because some of those consequences range from, let's say, not supporting action on climate change to not vaccinating yourself or your children, which also has larger societal effects. If not enough people don't have to tell this to a doctor, obviously, but if not enough people are vaccinated, right, it compromises herd immunity. So misinformation has led to people ingesting harmful substances. Here in the UK, people have set phone masks on fire because they think that 5G is somehow connected to the spread of COVID-19. Viral rumors on WhatsApp led to mob lynchings in India. So I think that there are behavioral consequences to misinformation as well. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the pandemic has been an interesting example of how humans interact with one another and balance personal risk and personal independence with societal needs. So do you have any insight into the choices people are making? You named some examples, but... You mean in terms of how they trade off what's in their own interest versus what's in the interest of other people? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the key examples of what we, at least in social psychology, call a social dilemma is the decision to vaccinate. Because the logic behind the social dilemma, I mean, for those who may not know, is that what seems to be in your personal interest, what, what seems to be sort of rational thing for you to do, which is not to take maybe any risk or to maximize your own sort of personal preference. If everyone does that, then collectively we're all worse off. And that's the case with vaccinations, right? If people say, oh, I don't want to get a jab. I don't want to take a small risk. I don't want to expose my child to any sort of potential risk, which is going to be interesting in itself because when we take an aspirin, we also take risks, right? So there's risk with everything. But I think the key point is that if everyone takes a tiny amount of risk, then we're all going to be protected, right? And that's what's in the public interest. And there's the nature of social dilemmas, and you see those everywhere. It's vaccination, it's climate change, it's recycling. Anything we do really is a trade-off between, am I going to do what's just in my interest, or am I going to do something that's also going to be in the interest of the collective or the planet or your family or your neighbors? And so for me, I think it's interesting to study how people make these sorts of trade-offs. And with vaccination, what we've seen is that actually... People don't always think about the pro-social angles or what we call the benefit to other people. And so some research has shown that if actually if you explain to people what the benefit is of herd immunity, that if you take a tiny risk, you can protect people who are vulnerable, who can't get a vaccine maybe because of a condition, elderly individuals. And so you can actually help other people by getting the vaccine and keeping them safe. And we found that actually people find that framing to be quite persuasive because no 
Very few people intentionally want to be a bad person or not care about other people, right? And so when you frame the decision to vaccinate as something that has benefits to other people and you're being kind because you're vaccinating, maybe not for yourself, but to protect other people, that works for, not for everyone, but it works for a lot of people that sort of heard, you know, explaining the benefits of herd immunity and the pro-social nature of the decision. I think that's been an interesting insight for me in terms of the research. And we found that people who score higher pro-sociality, so this is a trade that ranges from pretty much doing only what's in your interest versus also caring about other people. People who are quite high towards the, you know, I care about other people sort of spectrum, they're much more likely to see vaccination as in that context. And so helping people shift their thinking around to the societal benefits can be quite useful. It doesn't always work when you're in a society that's highly polarized and there's very strong expressions of individual freedom and counter narratives that suggest that it's all about executing your individual rights and so on, it gets more complicated. But for the most part, I think it's been helpful, that kind of message. And certainly here in part of the world that I'm currently based in the UK, there's been a lot of that pro-social framing throughout the pandemic, social distancing, and why do you have to wear the mask? Why do you have to keep your distance? And if you're young and healthy, why do you have to take on that burden? It's because you're helping vulnerable people. And most people are receptive to that. Yeah. I mean, speaking of polarization, it does seem like society, or at least in the United States and potentially also in the UK, is becoming more and more polarized about topics that haven't typically been that polarizing. Do you have any insight as to like why this is happening, why we're becoming so polarized? That's a great question. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was wondering whether COVID-19 was going to become a topic that will be politicized. Because in a way, you start out by thinking, oh, this is a virus, it's a pandemic, it's real. Nobody's going to deny that it's real because it's so obvious, right? Everyone knows it's a threat. We're all going to get on board and have bipartisan support. And then a few months in, you start to see the, the politicization happening and people become more and more polarized. People are denying that it's real. They're denying the extent to which we should do something about it. And it just becomes another way for people to express their political identity by either endorsing or protesting against COVID-19 measures. And it's so interesting that sometimes, even though we study it, you wouldn't expect it to happen. But in hindsight, it kind of makes sense. So what, what tends to happen is that I think a few factors that can help explain it. One is that the inherent uncertainty of science is used as a vehicle to politicize science, because you see that with other issues like climate change, for example, where there have been concerted campaigns to cast doubt on the link between fossil fuels and global warming. The same technique was used by the tobacco industries to cast doubt on the link between smoking and cancer. And it's a strategy that's really clever because they're not necessarily spreading fake news, but they're saying, look, look, we don't know enough yet. The science is emerging. It's evolving. Science is very uncertain. We should wait and see. And that sounds much more plausible to otherwise reasonable individuals who might go and say, oh, yeah, Maybe we don't know everything yet, and maybe it's overhyped, and maybe we should just wait and see. And that, I think, is the more dangerous kind of disinformation, actually, or what we call manipulation tactics, because it's not as obvious, and it's much more subtle, and it sounds much more reasonable. And so the uncertainty of science is used as a weapon against science, and that's kind of a well-known technique, and that's definitely been happening with COVID-19. We've seen it on masks, and especially when the science is rapidly evolving, it's also very hard for scientists to talk about uncertainty incorporated. Governments get very flustered about whether or not to admit uncertainty. And then you get the problem that 
if you don't communicate enough on certainty, people are going to get upset because you've miscommunicated or you said one thing and now it turns out to be another thing. That's a real big issue. I think the other thing, especially in the United States, but also here in the UK, is political elites. They have a real influence over the formation of public opinion. And you could see polarization in the tweets. If you looked at social media data, which some people have analyzed, you could see polarization happening in the tweets that they were sending out about COVID-19, whether it was Trump or, in fact, Bernie Sanders also said some polarizing things. And so early on, you can see the political elites debating it, which then trickles down into public opinion and it polarizes people. And so the elites are sending cues. That's another big thing. And then the third factor is the spread of misinformation that feeds into existing polarization. And so there are studies to show that actually Fox News was quite instrumental in disseminating misinformation about at least at the beginning of the pandemic, they were quite instrumental in disseminating misinformation. Social media has been a huge source of misinformation about COVID-19 and the pandemic. And so that also plays into it. But I think at the end of the day, you have a situation where people want to express their social identities in certain ways. So the issues become less important and it becomes more about expressing the group that you belong to. So if you're a conservative, you want to express the values that conservatives are endorsing and the elites are are signaling. And if you're a liberal, you want to do the same. And when you already have that environment in place and you're already polarized on so many issues, it becomes very easy for the next issue to just fit into that category because, oh, this is going to be another one of those issues that's a liberal hoax or an alarmist sort of thing. And we're going to have a counter sort of campaign against that narrative. And then you get two opposing camps. It's really surprising because your neighbors in Canada, there was bipartisan support for COVID-19 pretty quickly. And so it has a lot to do with the sort of unique political context of the United States. Although here in the UK, there's also been lots of misinformation and polarization on COVID. So it's definitely not unique to the United States. But there are certain countries like some of the Commonwealth countries like Australia, the UK and the US that are fairly similar in terms of the emergence of of polarization. Mm Mm-hmm. You've mentioned social media several times as far as tweets of some of the political elite and the role of WhatsApp in some violent crime in India. And really, I think social media has made it so much easier for people to peddle misinformation in a sense. So can you talk a little bit more about the role of social media in some of the misinformation campaigns? Yeah, it's a difficult question because... In a way, everyone kind of assumes that social media is a huge vector in terms of spreading misinformation, and it is, but the causal question is not so easy. So are people more polarized because of social media, or were people already polarized and then they were handed access to social media, which just amplified the existing polarization, right? And it's kind of the same with misinformation, although there's more evidence, I think, that some of the misinformation actually emerges on social media where it didn't exist before. And there's been research and it quite clearly shows that falsehood spread at many times the rate than factual stories on social media. And so I think there's a lot of good studies into that, showing that misinformation spreads much faster, further and deeper on social media than factual information. And in fact, Facebook's released some recent data showing that, in fact, that Chicago Tribune story was one of the top stories on Facebook at the beginning of the quarter. I think that actually misinformation gets five or six times as much engagement on the platform than factual information. Of course, they contest these claims, 
because they say that we don't have access to all of the data, which is true. And so that's part of the problem in trying to make these sort of inferences. But we did a study recently where we looked at millions and millions of data points on both Twitter and Facebook of both U.S. congressional accounts as well as all of the popular media accounts. And one of the things that was already well known is that emotional content tends to go viral more. So if you're highly emotional in your language, it tends to rile people up, both positive and negative. A later addition to that was what we call moral emotional language. So things that tap into moral transgressions that get people really excited. So it'd be a story like old lady assaulted on the street. Even if it's fake, it gets people really worked up because there was an innocent old lady and there was a violent criminal and these type of stories or, you know, baby died horrific side effect of new formula. Some of these fabricated stories that are supposed to, to really get people upset. So that was pretty well known. But one of the things that we added in this study was, and we replicated these patterns in our data, but what we found, and this is really interesting, is we coded whether the language in the tweets and the Facebook posts were from liberals or conservatives. And so actually what we found was the top predictor was of engagement on these platforms um, is the amount of what we call outgroup derogation. So the more you talk about the other group and the more negative things you say, the more likely you are to get engagement on your posts. And this is on top of using moral or emotional language. So really the number one predictor was trash talk about the other group that gets the most likes and shares on these platforms. And so it really kind of illustrates that social media amplifies political uh, tensions. And when you have that, it becomes easier for misinformation to spread as well because people use it as a way to reaffirm their political identity. So if you're angry at, let's say, liberals, and there's a story that's fake, and you kind of know it's fake, but it says something negative about liberals, then you're more likely to want to share that and forget about the accuracy sort of motivations of it, because now you have an overriding social motivation, which is to join a bandwagon and sort of express your identity. And so I think that's where social media really comes in and harnesses some of these effects. There's also filtering and, and things like that. So fact checking and corrections are all useful. But when on social media, you have segregated information patterns. So what happens is that people who are like minded tend to share content with each other. And that creates a very biased flow of information. So what's being retreated is people who are more similar like you are retreating similar content. But if you want to get the facts across, then you're not really penetrating those echo chambers because you can't get across to the audiences that you need to reach because of the flow of information is biased towards like-minded others. So people are spreading misinformation and sort of engaging with that kind of content. They're not going to share a factual story. So you don't get traction with the facts in that way on these platforms because the groups are polarized and the flow of information is interrupted and heavily biased towards a particular type of content. So it makes it very hard to actually debunk and fact check content because of the way that social media is structured. And I think that partly explains why it goes viral and why there's so much engagement. And that kind of leads to the question that we fundamentally need to redesign social media. I should say for your listeners that I'm a consultant for Facebook. I work with WhatsApp and I do a lot of work with Google. And so I try to help them counter misinformation within their institutional sort of confines. But at the same time, we do a lot of work that's pretty critical of, of social media companies, but just full disclosure. But it gives me also some insight into how these companies work and what I think the issues are. Because what's most interesting to me is that they don't envision these platforms as a 
wonderful place where people just share accurate and factual content. That's not their mission. And they're quite explicit about that. They say, look, this is not a platform that's meant to promote accurate content. We want people to have conversations, whatever conversations they want to have. And we have our policies and you can violate the terms of service, our use of policies, hate crimes and things like that. But as long as you don't do that, you can talk about anything. People don't realize that it's a fundamental shift in thinking where I'm thinking we could redesign these platforms to be really useful tools to disseminate all kinds of important, factual and accurate and constructive conversations. But in fact, the people running these platforms, that's not their goal. Even though they want to counter misinformation and they don't want bad things to happen on the platform, their goal is not necessarily to promote accuracy or facts. Their goal is to promote conversations of all kinds. That's really interesting because it seems like it's easier for people to have more emotional or, I guess, angrier conversations through these social media platforms compared to what they would do in real life. You know, if you run into somebody in a grocery store line, you're probably not going to end up saying the same things that I sort of see people say to one another on social media platforms. Do you think that that's played a role at all in some of this information bias where people just sort of like latch on to ideas that they choose to support? Yeah, I think so. So I think there's gradations of this. So if you look at the early days of the internet in the 90s and beyond, there were a number of studies that were quite interesting that had some insights about anonymity and people really expressing themselves in different ways online because they could assume any kind of identity. And they weren't afraid of the consequences of saying something because it's not face-to-face, right? You could say anything and people wouldn't know where you live, who you are, and so on. So I think that it was very prevalent then. On social media, you're not, unless you're a troll or a bot, you're not anonymous. So I think the incentive there is a bit reduced in the sense that people do care about their reputation on social media. So they are a bit more careful than if you were a completely anonymous blogger or netizen. But it's still the case that it's not face-to-face. And so I think people still feel emboldened to say things on social media that they wouldn't say to somebody face-to-face. So I think that still holds true, and that leads people to be more emotional and aggressive. I think that's why you see more of these flame wars and things like that on social media than you would see face-to-face. And some research shows that some randomized trials looked at what happens when people tune out from social media for a week, and they found that people get less polarized when they're not online. That's causal evidence, which we didn't really have for a long time on social media. Now, people are going to say, like, oh, but even though they tune out, they've had social media before, and so it's never... But you can never do a clean experiment that maybe you can have a medicine in some ways with social media, right? Because there's all these confounders that are always going to be present, and it's a social system, so it's difficult to study. But what we can do is, when you ask people, it's very simple tune out from social media for a week. People get less angry and they're less polarized, so that at least that says something about what might be going on. And I think that should send a signal to these companies that they might want to rethink some of the ways in which their platform works. But they're very notorious for putting out defensive press releases. And, you know, they say, oh, but polarization existed before social media. There's lots of evidence that says that it's correlational and not causal. And you can't know for sure because you don't have access to the platform. We have different data and they get it back and forth. And some of the points are worth considering. I mean, we don't have access to all the data and so on. But I think from what we can see from the outside with public data, I think there's lots of reason to be concerned about it. Yeah. I mean, I think just 
thinking about the issue, it makes sense that if you're seeking out somebody who agrees with what you're saying, it's much easier to connect with those people through online platforms rather than at your town grocery store or at a restaurant or a bar where people may have connected in the past. And so you may run across more people that don't necessarily agree with you in real life, whereas online, you can sort of instantly connect with other people who have similar biases as you do. And that sort of affirms those biases as correct. Yeah. And in all fairness, I guess some of these counter arguments are not complete bogus. So they would say that there are offline echo chambers too, which suggests that we are not the cause of echo chambers, right? Which is kind of distortion, I think, of what's going on. I mean, that's partly true, right? So real, really interesting studies that show even in New York City, in areas close to Central Park, Democrats are closer to each other than Republicans in terms of where they live. They might not even know it, but they segregate. Even in the same buildings, there'll be segregation. You look at an election map, right, of the United States, and you can see areas where people are predominantly one, have a political leaning toward one side versus the other. Absolutely. Yeah. You can see that on the map very clearly. And then they show that this is true even when you zoom in at the city level. And so it's really prevalent. I mean, they use this as a counter argument, but I don't think it's necessarily a counter argument. It's kind of it's true, but social media still makes it easier for people to also do this online. And then you have online echo chambers mapping onto geographical echo chambers. And then you have just a feedback system where it just enhances polarization and it speeds things up and it makes it worse. And then you can quibble about how much they make it worse. And they like to say that we don't know the counterfactual. If they had not existed, would it have been worse? And so on. But I think it's pretty clear that they're not adding positive value to that conversation about polarization. I think it's true that we come to the platforms with their own biases. But I think we don't expect them to then be amplified to such an extent that we get into a space that's very polarizing and negative and that we may not have anticipated or signed up for. And I think that's kind of the difference. Yeah. I think we could talk about social media all day, but um, I wanted to ask you about a study that you and your colleagues did regarding the organ petition and climate change. I thought this was a really interesting bit of research. Yeah. So we wanted to kind of test, it's interesting, in our field, people quibble about the effect of misinformation. And so they say, well, how can we know that misinformation is the cause of it, right? And so we did a very controlled experiment where, and this is several years ago now, but it was quite fundamental in establishing that misinformation has a very negative causal effect on people. And so what we did was we exposed people, one group to just the facts about climate change, and that was, that was pretty easy. We just said most scientists agree that climate change is happening and humans are the cause. One condition, we showed people this petition that you mentioned, the Oregon petition, which is a very strange project started in the 90s. It's a bunch of politicians and former pseudoscientists who started a petition claiming that thousands and thousands of scientists have signed this agreement saying that global warming isn't real. And so when you really examine this petition, there were all kinds of strange things happening. So signatories on it were Spice Girls and Charles Darwin. People were clearly just fooling around, signing up to this bogus petition and saying it. And so there's no quality control on this petition. And there were other issues like, okay, there's some people on there with degrees, but they're not in climate science. And so their expertise is totally irrelevant to making claims about climate science. But it's been very influential. It formed the basis of the most viral story on 
Facebook in 2016 saying that, oh, scientists have declared global warming as a hoax. And so even though it's from the 90s, it's being recycled all the time. And so, yeah, it went viral on social media and it's being kept up to date, this petition. But the purpose of this petition is yeah, to cast doubt on the scientific consensus by suggesting that there's thousands of scientists who say that they don't agree with the science. And in this experiment, we first wanted to see what effect that has on people. And then the second question was whether we can inoculate or vaccinate or immunize people against this sort of content. And what we found was that, yeah, if you expose people to this petition, they're very confused about the scientific consensus on climate change, whereas they were already a bit confused, but now they're sort of really downgrading their perception of whether or not this is a settled sort of issue in terms of climate change. And we know that that matters because if people think the science isn't settled, they won't want to take action. And that's kind of the strategy that this petition plays into. In fact, it's called a fake expert technique. And so you use fake credentials to try to convince people that you have expertise. Petition is actually modeled off of the tobacco industry did where they had prop up fake doctors and saying that their favorite brand of cigarettes is Camel or Lucky Strikes. And they would run campaigns with, they would call it the White Coat Project, where they, as a doctor, you know, probably like no one else, that they use the white coat to fake expertise and dupe people. And so because doctors are, from research we know, doctors are the most trusted expert, more so even than, let's say, college professors. And so I think the issue there is what can you do about it? And so what we found is that, well, it did have a very negative effect on people. And instead of the sort of fact-checking and debunking, which was kind of the main strategy that's being used to try to counter misinformation, we wanted to see, could we preemptively vaccinate people against this sort of technique? And it really follows the vaccination analogy kind of exactly. So what we did is we preemptively injected people with a weakened dose of the virus. So we told people, look, there's some petition online. It's going to try to convince you that global warming isn't real, but you should know that Charles Darwin has signed it and it's total bogus and the people on there don't actually have any expertise in climate science. And so be warned. And then later on the experiment, we let people browse the website and look around and what we found was that if you preemptively inoculate people, it doesn't fully immunize them, that the misinformation has no impact on people. It did still make them doubt the science a little bit more, but the effect was tiny compared to when we didn't inoculate people. So when we didn't inoculate people, they were massively confused, so to speak, whereas when we inoculated people, they were still on board with the science, just a little bit less than before. And that was the idea that, wait a second here, we can actually psychologically inoculate people against these sort of techniques. And even though it's not like a real vaccine that you get 95 or you get 95%, don't want to spread misinformation here on the exact percentage, but there's probably some range here. It was still pretty useful. And this was true for whether you were conservative or liberal, it didn't really matter what your affiliation was. And so we found that to be quite useful. So that was what the Oregon study was about. That's so interesting. So basically, just by preparing people for the fact that there may be misinformation present, they were more aware of it and then able to combat it, like you said, just sort of like a vaccination. Exactly. And there's a few important psychological mechanisms here, because one of the things I realized over the years is that the main response of debunking and fact-checking is based around the notion that people don't know enough, that we don't have enough facts, and that we don't understand the science. And although education is important, and this is true to some extent, I think the total misperception is that somehow bolstering this 
is going to protect people from misinformation. And it doesn't because it's not specific enough. It's not targeted. It doesn't give people the right antibodies they need. What is useful is actually simulating the attack for people in weakened dose and giving them the specific refutations they need beforehand so that they can retrieve them and access them from their memories and rehearse them in advance. And then when they're challenged on their beliefs, they actually can sort of retrieve the right information and they've been warned before and had time to sort of think about it. And so this is what we call resistance to persuasion. So now people can resist attempts to persuade them of false information. And you don't get that when you try to retroactively debunk something or fact check. So I'm not saying that that's bad, but the problem is that once you're exposed to a falsehood, really exposed, let's say for a few years, like the vaccines cause autism, it really settles into your associative memory networks that we make links with other concepts. And the longer it sits, the stronger the links between nodes in our memories become. And so it becomes very difficult to then get rid of it. So I can tell you something is wrong and your brain will mark it as incorrect. But that doesn't do much in itself because it's still linked to all sorts of other things. And so people continue to make inferences based on false information, even when they acknowledge that they've seen the correction. And I think one way of illustrating this is that if I told you I went to your favorite restaurant down the street and got food poisoning, had a terrible night, don't go there. Now, a month from now, I'll tell you, actually, you know what? It wasn't your street. I totally got that confused. It was somebody else's street. But now every time you're going to walk past that restaurant, even though you know that was false, you're going to think food poisoning. And it works the same with misinformation. That's just the brain's way of of keeping track about things. And, And that's why it's so difficult to get rid of it after the fact, even though it can be helpful and there are ways to do that. We just found that there's so much value in the prevention metaphor, just as with vaccines, really, that prevention is better than cure. And it does depend on the incubation period. If we follow the viral analogy of the misinformation pathogen, right? So you can pre-bunk or inoculate. We call it pre-bunking because it's easier for people to understand. And you pre-bunk. And that works pretty well. There's like a timeline. So sometimes the the inoculation is more therapeutic, like a therapeutic vaccine. People have already been exposed, but hasn't really settled into your brain yet. You've kind of heard of it, but you're not infected yet to the degree that you're sharing misinformation. And so there's therapeutic value in boosting your immune response with an inoculation. But of course, it's better if it's totally prophylactic in the sense that we can get there before the misinformation arrives in the first place. And then at the end, we're just kind of debunking after the fact if we come very late to the story. And that's kind of the spectrum, I think, that we deal with. And what we found is that it's so much more effective to try to go the vaccination route. So one thing that I've been asked repeatedly is how people know that a source of information is valid or trustworthy. And I mean, when I'm looking at an information source, I generally will look at primary scientific literature. I'll look at the methods, evaluate the methods of the studies and decide whether it's an article that's reached its conclusions appropriately. That said, that's a tough set of skills to learn um, and usually takes at least two to four years of graduate education, or in my case, 11 years of graduate education to learn to do properly. So I'd like to be able to tell people that they can trust physicians, but I've also seen a lot of physicians out there sort of peddling misinformation, which probably, I guess, started in the era of Andrew Wakefield. So do you have any advice or good ways that the general public can validate information to determine if it comes from a reliable source and is trustworthy? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting question. So on one hand, I think there are useful sort of tips, like check the source, make sure that there is a context provided. Is the source credible? Can you identify it? Right. Try to find other lines of evidence that 
support the source. So there are these tips that are useful to follow. But what we found in a lot of our research is rather than trying to tell people what's true or false, we've kind of trained people to recognize the techniques of manipulation in spotting information that may not be true. And the reason for that is because when the heuristic is at the level of the publisher, that works pretty well, but not always. So take the Chicago Tribune, for example. If you use the heuristic, is the source reliable? Chicago Tribune has independent fact-checker ratings that are very high, but then they publish a headline like, Dr. Died after getting the COVID vaccine. Then that's not working because even though it's a reliable source, the headline is misleading. So what we tend to do is we try to familiarize people with the most common techniques that are used to spread misinformation. And so some of these we've already talked about includes polarization. So is a headline polarizing? It's probably that. So you should probably be suspicious. And what we try to do is get people in the mindset of not is this true or false, but calibrate your judgment in terms of how reliable something is. And we can chat more about evolving science and how we as scientists are trained to constantly update our opinions about the weight of evidence on something. And I think it's useful for the public to not see something as true or false. You know, can you drink wine during pregnancy? Oh, 10 years ago, you can, no, you can. It's one glass, two glass. This doctor says no, this doctor says yes. It's all very confusing, right? And so I think a model where you say, well, there is evidence out there and we want to know what the weight of the evidence is to inform my judgment of how trustworthy or reliable this is. And then I can adjust it as I go and learn more things about the world. And I think that's a different kind of frame that most people are in. They're kind of like, is it yes or no? Is this true or false? And so we have games, for example, that we entertain people with, but have also some, some educational value. We train people on polarization by going through lots of these headlines. And so we'll say, look at this headline. New study shows massive IQ difference between liberals and conservatives. And then we ask people, you know, rather than is this true or false, how reliable do you think this is? And at the end of the day, what people take away from it is that that was meant to polarize people, that headline, regardless of whether the facts, there's some grain of truth to the study that it's quoting, that's a polarization technique. I should now be more suspicious of what they're trying to tell me. We have one module on conspiracy theory, so how to spot a conspiracy theory, the use of emotions to manipulate people. We've talked about that as well. Trolling, discrediting or denial, fake experts, impersonation. So what we do is we try to get people to pay attention to the techniques rather than only the source or the context or the numbers or, and so on. And how do you do this practically? When we identify stuff as false, for example, on social media companies, we kind of explain not just why it's false, but what the technique is that is being used to do people. And we find that people react less negatively to that. So if you're a doctor and you're talking to a vaccine hesitant person and they say, oh, this individual with, with lots of credentials is telling me that vaccines are dangerous or that they cause autism, instead of saying, no, that's not true, which is kind of just leaving them with little understanding of why that's true. And instead of explaining the science, which you might do anyway, it's not a bad thing. But what we would do is say, look, these people are trying to dupe you with a technique known as the fake expert technique. This person actually doesn't have any credentials. They're being used to fake expertise so that you can manipulate people into believing so-and-so. And people really have this, especially the vaccine-hesitant people and the conspiracy people, they're, they're very averse to being manipulated. So they actually kind of like this idea of being in the truther, sort of unveiling the attempts of manipulation. And so you wouldn't necessarily say that they're wrong, but you would just say, look, I'm just unveiling 
the techniques of manipulation. It's up to you what you want to believe. And we found that that is actually gets them much more interested in finding out the truth than saying you're wrong. Here's the science and go home and study it type of thing. Now, if in a professional setting, it's important to make sure people have safe information about vaccinations, obviously. But as an addition, you could sort of explain the technique. And that's what we found really useful because then people don't have to come back for every specific piece of information, but they can now recognize the technique when it's used in different sort of contexts. Is there anywhere that our listeners can access your trainings or your games or... Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to learn about these techniques in hopefully not a boring way, all of our interventions are free and publicly available. So our main one is called Bad News, which is a pun. It's about a 15-minute simulation into all the bad news that's out there. It's getbadnews.com, and it's free. You can play and share it called Get Bad News. We have one on COVID-19 specifically. It's called goviralgame.com. Some of these were developed with some support from the World Health Organization and so on. And so it's part of Stop the Spread campaign. And Go Viral is much shorter. It's about five to seven minutes. And it goes through the three techniques that are really prevalent when it comes to COVID misinformation. So we go through conspiracy theories, fake expertise, and what we call naturalistic fallacies, and the use of emotions to manipulate people. And so you get lots of examples and you can rate things and people respond to you when you tweet things. So it's interactive. And so we actually get you in the mode of tweeting out stuff that's false and then get people to respond to you. It's all sort of, you know, in a controlled environment so you can learn what happens and how the sausage is made in the hopes of maybe steering people towards vegetarianism once they know that the sausage is made out of lots of, uh, you know, not so tasty things. That's kind of the goal of it. Like once you know how it's produced, you're not going to be duped by it again. That's kind of the goal of these interventions. Cool. Well, we'll try to put those in the show notes so they're easy for people to find as well. Let's talk a little bit about evidence-based medicine. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I often hear patients talk about how it doesn't seem like anybody knows what's going on regarding the pandemic because the recommendations change so frequently. And I always try to explain this in the sense that the scientific community gets more information and collects data, and then we update recommendations based off of new data and new understanding that we get from that. So can you sort of define for the audience and discuss how evidence-based medicine factors into many of the decisions that doctors, epidemiologists, and agencies like the NIH make? Yeah, so... I think one of the most important things for medical and public health professionals is to use evidence-based communications when talking to patients. And I think that that can be really useful in not only increasing trust, but also generally helping people get a better grasp of science and how the process sort of works. And one of the ways, I think, in which you can do this, I mean, we can talk about vaccine hesitancy specifically because we do a lot of work with doctors on how to talk to people who are vaccine hesitant. But more generally, I think we've developed some principles. We published a short piece in Nature on five rules of evidence communication that's kind of based on our insights on how to communicate science and evidence in a way that is supported by insights from behavioral sciences. And pre-bunking is one of them. So you pre-bunk myths for people. And that is a very proactive approach that I think a lot of doctors and journalists are not necessarily used to. So the whole point of the pre-bunk is that you do it preemptively. And so when somebody comes into the practice, 
you might want to inoculate them against myths about vaccinations, even when they don't bring up vaccinations. And that's kind of, I think, maybe a slightly odd way for the conversation to go or to steer, because you're kind of going off what the patient comes in for, and the docs are busy and have limited time. But when you have a moment to pre-bunk, for example, influential myths, I think that that's kind of evidence-based. Because otherwise, what you're doing is debunking. So they come in with the concern. They've already been exposed. Now they're concerned, and they want to talk to you about the issues. And then it's not too late, but we're further in the quote-unquote infection stage than we want to be. And so the evidence-based thing would be to actually try to preempt that by giving people the tools they need to withstand these kinds of misinformation attempts that people find. And it's kind of like when TV weather forecasters start talking about climate change and making the link for people between extreme weather events and climate change. And it's tricky because not every single weather event is related to climate change. The science is complex. But they're professionals, so they can do it in a way that's scientifically justified. And I think that doctors can do the same thing. You just don't want to say anything about randomly bring up vaccines or hygiene measures when it comes to COVID-19. But I think these things can be done. The other really important thing is to talk about uncertainty. And a lot of professionals are really averse to talking about uncertainty because the baseline belief is that people don't understand uncertainty and they're going to get more hesitant when I give them uncertainty. And I think the most difficult type of uncertainty for people to deal with is actually medical uncertainty. So, you know, let's say that you have cancer or a serious disease and the the prognosis is just unsure or uncertain. And people really struggle with that, which is understandable, and they want to reduce uncertainty. Sort of most people are uncertainty minimizers. So we want to reduce the uncertainty. That's the whole point of communication, in fact. It's to reduce uncertainty about what other people are thinking and doing in a way. And so I think doctors are often put in a position where people demand certainty, just like they demand certainty from scientists in terms of what the answer is. And what we found in our studies is that when you can provide quantitative, precise estimates of likelihoods and probabilities, people are fine with uncertainty that way. When it's verbal and vague, people don't like that and it doesn't help them. And so if you said to someone, look, I mean, you could come out of this alive or not, or I'm really not sure. That's not the kind of uncertainty people appreciate or know how to deal with, right? So then that might not be the best way to communicate that type of uncertainty. But if you can say to people, look, out of 100 people who undergo this surgery, 90 of them don't have any complications, two of them have major complications, and so on. If there's actually evidence that's available of the incidence rate of things, and you can actually say, well, with some degree, we're not sure, but... You know, out of 100, let's say out of 100 people, uh, 90 of them do pretty well with this type of intervention. Then you allow people to make an informed decision about whether that's something they want to do. The framing here is really interesting because as a doctor, you could say 10 people don't do so well. Or you could say, no, on average, 90 people come out fine. Or you could say, on average, 10 people come out with some some pretty bad complications. And what, what people actually take away from that is they wonder why you choose a particular frame. So it's the same statistical information, right? But if you say 10 don't come out so fine, maybe people tend to see that as a cue to discourage them from the surgery. Let's say, oh, the doctor, they're focusing on the negative. So maybe I shouldn't do this. Whereas statistically, it's actually the exact same information. So we need to be aware of how framing techniques sort of influence people and the way they think about it. And the one way to do that, and this is where I'm getting to my point, is to provide balanced information. And so when you use a frame, also use the other frame, right? And that's a holistic way of explaining it to people. So that means 90 people come out fine, 10 might have some complications. 
and not use one or the other frames because that influences people in a certain way. So that's what we call, you know, give people a balanced overview of both the benefits and harms, which most doctors are aware of, but it's not always communicated. So COVID-19, this, this was a huge thing with the harms and benefits discussion of social distancing and mask wearing and whether or not only benefits are being communicated. Apparently people were seeing lots of harms and are those justified or not? And some of these harms are political restrictions of freedom that people are factoring in. Oh, I find it really inconvenient to wear a mask and, and so on. And so we have to talk about the benefits and the risks. Then quality of evidence, which is a really interesting one. Most communication, even in healthcare settings, doesn't talk about the quality of the underlying evidence. Um, and so when I go to the doctor, we had a, a baby a few months ago and we were talking to our obstetrician. Yeah, well, thanks. We were talking to our obstetrician about really complicated studies. My wife had some values that were slightly off in her liver and we're trying to figure out the, the risk factor for when exactly to have the baby. And it turns out a lot of these studies were low quality. They were done with like 10 people. It wasn't double blind, it wasn't placebo. And so even a doctor was telling us, look, I don't know where we can really conclude from these studies. But usually they have some intuition. They say, actually, this is the rule. If the values are above this threshold, then you have intervention. Otherwise, we're just going to wait it out. And we ask, what is that based on? And then you look at the underlying studies and you actually this rules from the 1990s where the quality of these studies were actually pretty poor in terms of causal terms. Or we now have better studies or there's a lack of studies, in fact, and so we're none the wiser. And so that reminded a lot of us that often we don't know much about the quality of the underlying studies. Is it really double blind? Is it the highest standard of evidence or is this an association? And, and you know, eating burnt toast might increase your risk of cancer. There's some association, but how does that work? And so what's the quality of the underlying evidence in terms of risk factors? And it's really interesting that this is often not communicated. And I think with COVID, the issue is that it was low. The quality of evidence was low because we don't have a lot of studies and we didn't have a lot of the randomized trials yet. And so that wasn't being communicated. And so wrapping this all up, what we found is that for people to perceive a communicator as trustworthy, they have to admit uncertainty and provide it in ways people can understand. And we don't have to unnecessarily concern people when we can't express uncertainty in useful ways. But when we can, people actually don't mind. They handle it fine in their decision-making. We want to pre-bunk myths for people. We want to be clear about the quality of the evidence. We want to be balanced about the way we frame things. And those are some key principles that we've derived for evidence-based communications. And the key thing is not necessarily to get people to trust you. We've noticed with a lot of parties that people think that these are tricks you can use to then increase trust. But actually, what our point was is that if you use these things you demonstrate trustworthiness as a communicator, which is different from using them to gain people's trust. And I think what we want in the end is to demonstrate that we're trustworthy by giving people all that they need to make informed and evidence-based decisions. Yeah, I really like kind of how you have sort of laid out all of that information because intuitively it makes sense. Intuitively, you always want to present a balanced approach. You want to use statistics. You want to use evidence. But a lot of times, I don't think we've necessarily thought through what those specific steps or sort of criteria are for trustworthiness. So I really appreciate sort of your approach to that. And I think those are great tips for physicians. Are there any tips that you have for the general public or anyone who's not a scientist or clinician on how they can communicate better, correct misinformation? 
Yeah, so if you want to correct misinformation, I think one of the biggest services you can do is actually to try to protect your friends and family from misinformation. And so inoculate them when you can. When you know something that's good, you see it in your WhatsApp group, proactively go out and tell your family that there's some nefarious information that they shouldn't buy into, because that's actually quite useful. Even though it takes some effort on your part, there's a huge benefit to other people and it prevents it from spreading further because we need to break the virality of this content that only happens when people stop sharing it. The best way to get people to stop sharing it is if they're not receptive to it in the first place. So that's sort of, a, I think, a useful tip. The other is if you want to debunk something, if you're talking to somebody who's already really bought into a narrative, one of the interesting things that we found is that Debunking doesn't work very well when you don't have an alternative for people. So what happens in our memories is that if you say something is wrong, now there's a gap. And if that gap isn't filled, people are going to continue to retrieve what they thought was true. So you actually need to provide people with a positive alternative explanation. So if the virus wasn't leaked from a lab, then what's going on? So telling people that that's not true isn't going to effectively debunk the myth. It's going to just sit there and people are going to continue to think that it's true. You need an alternative. And when there's no alternative, there's little you can do. But when there is an alternative, so for example, we'd say, well, actually the World Health Organization or somebody that have concluded that this is actually the most plausible explanation at the moment for how the virus originated or where it originated from, then that gives people an alternative explanation that they can now consider and put in their memories and update their beliefs. And so give people an alternative the third maybe is, and this is more about talking to people who are conspiracy theorists or really vaccine hesitant, kind of people far down the rabbit hole. And so I'm kind of taking in steps, pre-bunk when you can, when nobody's been exposed, and then you can debunk when you have conversations with regular people, your cranky uncle. Then there's really talking with people, and we all know maybe one or two individuals who are really sort of off the uh, deep end here. And I think the best way that we've found on how to do that in our research is to use a gateway. And some people call this persuasion. And I like all things pre. So persuasion is the idea that people need to be ready to be persuaded by you. If they're not in the right mindset, then they're not going to listen to anything that you have to say. And how to get that persuasion going is you need some sort of gateway. And it's quite interesting because... Because of the degree of polarization, people have become less and less likely to want to understand each other and step into the shoes of the other people. And so that, this is why it often is not implemented. But what ideally what we do is find some common ground, some in with somebody, and then pivot from there. And so with conspiracy theorists, for example, there's a technique called worldview validation. And for conspiracy theorists, it's really important that their worldview is being validated. And a lot of people don't want to do that because they think that's ridiculous. But if you seriously want to have a conversation with somebody, you have to operate within their frame of reference first and not just be in some separate silo because that just isn't going to work. And so what you might say is, look, some conspiracy theories were real. I mean, Julius Caesar was stabbed in the middle of the theater. They plotted this. It was a big conspiracy. So I totally get that, that some conspiracies have happened in the past. However... COVID-19 is very real, though. That's not a conspiracy. And so now they feel that you validated part of who they are, part of their beliefs, and now they can have a more reasonable conversation with you about whether or not COVID-19 is a conspiracy theory. When it comes to vaccine hesitancy, I'm sure you're probably familiar with this, motivational interviewing is an evidence-based technique that a lot of healthcare practitioners work. I like it because it's very non-confrontational and it respects people's values. So 
instead of saying, you're an idiot, you need to get vaccinated, stop believing. Conversations that start that way always go well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you don't know anything, you don't understand the science. Start by saying, look, I'm interested to hear your viewpoint. Why are you concerned about vaccines? Sometimes it turns out people have real concerns and they just don't understand it. And once they get a different opinion, they might change their mind. Sometimes people have been duped by misinformation. And from there, you can determine how to pivot it. So for example, if somebody has a legitimate concern and they might say, well, legitimate in the sense that they just don't know how it works. They say, oh, I don't know about the COVID vaccine. I'm religious and I hear that there's animal protein in it. Then you say, oh, well, that's very important to consider. And that's obviously very important to you because it's part of your religion. And then you actually ask for permission to say something. And so you say, oh, would you mind if I express my views? And say, I know lots of people, my doctor, and he assures me that absolutely there's no animal product in vaccines. In fact, there's official resources you can go to that show you that there's no animal products in vaccines. You don't push people, but at the end of the conversation, and this is the goal of motivational interviewing, is to get people towards an action. So you'd say, would you be open to having a look at this pamphlet? Would you be open to visiting this website? If you're talking about getting the vaccine, you might say, would you be open to making an appointment with your doctor to discuss it? It means your decision, right? Not forcing anything on you, but maybe you want to listen to what the doctor has to say about it and then make an informed decision. And so you motivate people towards a decision by respecting their values and operating within their frame of reference and not coming on too strong with uh, debunking. Even when you debunk something, I find it much more useful to say, instead of it's wrong, you would say, hmm, have you thought about people who float these kinds of ideas? Do you think they could make money off of you sharing it? Or could they profit off of you? And maybe this is a technique that's being used, right? Again, sort of unveil the techniques and let people figure out on their own whether or not they're being duped here kind of like the Socrates method a little bit. And I found that those approaches work better. They're more indirect. They're slower. They take more time. You might have to do it repeatedly. And unfortunately, in the polarized environment, everyone's run out of patience and very few people are implementing this approach. But I think long-term, it's the better path towards getting everyone on board. That's all fascinating. I feel like you've shared so many incredible and very valuable techniques to help curb this spread of misinformation and how to have more productive discussions rather than these like emotional online shouting matches. So thank you so much. I feel like I have kept you over time though. Do you have any final thoughts or any advice that you'd like to share? No, I think we pretty much covered it. If I ranted on about things, hopefully you can edit it and turn it into <laughs> something. No, I think it was all fantastic. I really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, hopefully listeners find some useful nuggets in there. It was great. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Vanderlinden. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, or connect with us on Instagram at The Emergency Docs or on our website at www.theemergencydocs.com. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. Until next time. 